are you the king of the Jews? Jesus, are you? Standing before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, the local representative of the great political power of the day, are you the king of the Jews? It's a straightforward question, isn't it? Or is it? You know how Jesus answered John 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Or maybe, if we're hearing the biblical echoes, we might hear it this way. I am not a king like all the other nations. Oh, but he is a king. Because, dear friends, there is a king. There has always been a king. His name is the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the God of creation. Remember this from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who is this king of glory? The psalmist asks. The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. He is. He who created the earth and who created a people, a people he would care for, provide for and deliver from their enemies to show what kind of king he is. Exodus 15, on the other side of the Red Sea, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the God of creation. Exodus 15, verse 1, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders you have led in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed? The Lord will reign forever and ever. There is a king. There has always been a king. And there always will be a king. From Exodus 15, we can go to Revelation 15. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass, John writes, mingled with fire. 
and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands and they sing the song of Moses the servant of God and the song of the lamb saying great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. My kingdom is not from the world, Jesus says. How could it be? He who created the world itself. He whom the world put to death. Even death on a cross. But for what? To what end? The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2, the one who died was raised exalted so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, King of creation. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And those who passed by derided him. Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, <clears throat> is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 to 22. And in verse 7 of that text, if you have your Bibles in front of you, we read this. And the Lord said to Samuel, <laughs> the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. They have rejected me from being king over them. There is a king, brothers and sisters. There has always been a king, and there will always be a king, and his name is the Lord. And his people do not want him. Now, it's only a little later on in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel that we find out a little more the full reason why. And we'll come to chapter 12 soon enough, of course, as we'll look at the entire chapter in more detail in a few weeks. But if you would, just flip over to chapter 12 and go to verse 10 for now. 1 Samuel 12, verse 10. In 1 Samuel 12, Samuel's speaking. It's his final words. Rehearsing, of course, in outline the history of the people of Israel since the Exodus. 
And in verse 10 of 1 Samuel 12, he comes right up to where we were last week, if you were joining us for this Samuel series, when we considered chapter 7. So here's verse 10 of 1 Samuel 12. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety, which is where we were last week in chapter 7, remember? Ebenezer, till now the Lord has helped us, Samuel declares. The people had turned to the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 4 said the the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. And so the Lord fought for them. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, Moses said, and the Philistines are back, but this time it's the Lord who thunders with the mighty sound that day against the Philistines towards the end of chapter 7 and throws them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel, the text says, not defeated by Israel, defeated before Israel, because it was the Lord who fought the battle. Which is why verse 13 says from chapter 7, And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel, and there was peace, the text says. There was shalom. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. But something happened something that's not stated in chapter 8 explicitly, but is recounted by Samuel back in chapter 12. So if your finger's still there, go flip back over to chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. Now verse 12, picking right up from where I left off before I explained where we were last week. Here we are now, verse 12 of chapter 12. Samuel says, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king, Samuel says, a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king, and right there, you have the root of the problem as the narrative of 1 Samuel presents it. In chapter 7, the people had learned to trust the Lord. Till now, the Lord has helped us. But it wasn't to last. And a number of years have passed now when we come to chapter 8. Verse 1 of chapter 8, our text today says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Things were now feeling unstable. You could say Israel had enjoyed many years of security and peace under Samuel. But the man was old now. The future beyond his death didn't look great. Joel and Abijah weren't like their father. Verse 3 tells us that. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, the text says, but turned aside. After gain, they took bribes and perverted justice. 
Why had Samuel made them judges? Well, they were in Beersheba, far to the south of where Samuel's regular circuit was as a judge. So presumably they had been installed there to share the burden of the work. But I mean, did Samuel know their character? When did they turn aside? Why were they still serving? The text doesn't give us answers to those kinds of questions. All we know is that Samuel's sons didn't administer justice as Samuel was doing. They perverted it. And the peace and the security of these Samuel years seem to be in jeopardy. If the sons were to play any role in the future. And so verse 4 says, All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. which is slightly ominous because, of course, it was the elders of Israel who on a much earlier occasion had come up with a proposal to solve another national security crisis back in chapter 4, if you remember, when it was the elders of Israel who proposed to bring down the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. Now there's another national security crisis. It's not stated explicitly in chapter 8, but we just read it from verse 12 of chapter 12. Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had come against them. What is to be done? Would they say, till now the Lord has helped us, trusting the Lord for what was to come next? No. The elders went to talk to Samuel. Behold, they say, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. All of which is true. But then comes their proposal, their shocking proposal. Now, they say, now, at this juncture of insecurity, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Appoint for us a king, Samuel, to judge us. But remember what Samuel said when he recalled this demand in chapter 12 of verse 12? You said to me, Samuel recalled, no, but a king shall reign over us. A king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. There was no crying out to Yahweh for deliverance. Instead comes the demand from the elders of Israel for a king. And it is a clear, if subtle, substitution. Note a couple things in the language of verse 5. First, they ask for a king to judge us. You heard already how Samuel interpreted that request when he says in chapter 12, in verse 12, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. Samuel, of course, had judged the people as had many judges before him. But the proposal was that this arrangement of the judges, by which in fact the Lord had judged Israel for many years, should be replaced, they say, by a king. They ask for a king to judge us. And then secondly, they say, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. What is the nature of this request? like 
all the nations. What was Israel supposed to be? Listen to a handful of texts here. Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Leviticus 26 verse 20, excuse me, Leviticus 20 verse 26. You shall be holy to me for I, the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Deuteronomy 4, verse 6. Moses tells them to keep the statutes of the Lord, for that will be your wisdom in the sight of all the peoples, he says, who will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Deuteronomy 26, verse 19. Keep all his commandments, and he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made. As I read verse 5 of 1 Samuel 8, the elders of Israel were effectively saying, we don't want to be all of that. We aren't interested any longer in being above or set apart from or unique among the nations. We just want to be like them, Samuel. Did you note how in every one of those texts from the Pentateuch I just read, it was their obedience to the Lord, their abiding by the Lord's covenant. That's what would distinguish them from the nations. Their obedience to the Lord as their king was what was required. Look at in the ancient world, it was kings who made covenants with their people. That's what they're rejecting. They don't want to be concerned with Yahweh's covenant any longer. They want to be like the nations. They'd lived among the Canaanites for at least two centuries. Now they want to become like them. And that's not too strong a read, I don't think, given verses 7 and 8 of our chapter. So look there at verses, actually begin in verse 6. Verse 6, 1 Samuel 8. The request is made. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Now that's a weak translation. The Hebrew means the thing was evil in the eyes of Samuel. It was evil. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to this response. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. In other words, their demand for a king is tantamount to rebellion in line with forsaking me and serving other gods. Once again, they are failing to trust the Lord. Their request for a king like all the nations is a clear repudiation of their calling as the Lord's people. Hence, the conclusion you come to 
Again, in 1 Samuel 12, if you flip over to verse 17 of 1 Samuel 12, here's the bottom line. Your wickedness is great, Samuel says, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. This is a turning point in the history of the people of Israel. This is a turning point in the history of the world. And the message of 1 Samuel chapter 8 and then chapter 12 seem clear enough to me. But then I need to pause for a couple of minutes and insert a large parenthesis in the sermon at this moment. Because you know your Old Testament, and so I think it might not be unlikely that after the service this morning you might come to me and say, but pastor, haven't you read Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 to 20? And that's the question you all have on your mind right now, right? <laughs> Haven't you read Deuteronomy 17? Would you turn there in your Bibles back to Deuteronomy 17? How can you say all of that? Wasn't the kingship the plan for Israel all along? Do you know where Deuteronomy is? Back towards the front, five books in. Just turn to the left from 1 Samuel a bit. You'll get there past Judges, past Joshua. If that's the question you came and asked me, that would be a very good question. Because listen to how Moses sets the scene when he gives these laws related to future kings in Israel. Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. He says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Sound familiar? What comes next in verse 15, Deuteronomy 17, Moses says, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. You may indeed do it. What? But isn't it wrong? I mean, according to 1 Samuel, that Israel asked for a king? And I've clearly said, I think the answer to that question is yes. You can't read 1 Samuel 8 and 12 without concluding that they're wrong. How do you deal with this? And I think the answer goes something like this. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses did in fact indicate that the time would come when Israel would want a king. And that would even be okay, provided that they heeded certain strictures you can read those in verses 16 to 20 of Deuteronomy 17. What it all amounts to is this. Israel may have a king and in that way be like the nations. 
But everything rides on what kind of king they wanted to have. Do you see? Because ironically, the whole point of Deuteronomy 17 is to ensure that in fact, they didn't end up with a king who was like all the nations. And what would be the primary indication that this is so? According to Deuteronomy 17, it's in verses 18 to 20, if you're still looking at it. The king that Israel, the, the, the king that Israel could have was to write for himself, Moses says, in a book, a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Or in other words, the king was to ensure his people were not, in fact, like all the nations. As I read it, the whole point of Deuteronomy 17 is to warn against precisely the kind of kingship Israel now demands. So as one commentator puts it in 1 Samuel 8, the elders were asking, in effect, to opt out of the covenant with the Lord and to adopt a pagan model of being a nation. And Samuel knew what was going on. The thing was evil in the eyes of Samuel, the Hebrew text says. This is not as Moses had envisioned it. Their proposal might have seemed politically quite reasonable to them, but it was utterly godless. It was a rejection of God's ways and an attempt to find Israel's security somewhere other than in the Lord. So there's my answer to your question. So Samuel prays. And as we move through the end of chapter 8, it's the Lord's response that I find the most troubling in our passage. Now we've read verses 6 to 8 already of 1 Samuel 8. The Lord sees that they have indeed rejected him in this. The troubling thing is that he lets them do it. Look at verse 9. Now then, the Lord says to Samuel, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Obey their voice, he says. Only warn them, theirs will be a king like the Canaanite kings around them. The troubling thing is that the people were to be given the king that they're asking for. Which means, as I read it, that the Lord's willingness to grant the people their request at this moment was an act of judgment. It is one of the aspects of the way God runs the world is to sometimes give us what we ask for. Or to put it the way Paul does in Romans 1, God sometimes gives us up to the desires of our hearts. It's not the last word here, is it? It's after saying this that God then bids Samuel point out to the Israelites what it will be like to have a king like all the nations, verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And you heard all of these words read earlier in verses 11 to 17. I won't reread them. 
just to note that the ways or the justice literally of this king who would reign over them are characterized by the repeated verb to take. Did you notice that? He'll take their sons, their daughters, the best of their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, a tenth of their produce, their servants, their young men, their donkeys. This isn't shocking. Samuel simply describes what kings in the ancient Near East, what kings like what Israel wanted, what they did. Samuel wants them to know what they're asking for. The catalog comes then to this dramatic conclusion with the words in verse 17, and you shall be his slaves. The point couldn't be clearer. If they insisted on rejecting the divine king who'd redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, then they'd find themselves in slavery again. Only this time their cries won't be heard. Verse 18, And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Note the terms in which Samuel describes the requested king. It's your king, he says, whom you have chosen for yourselves. Remember Deuteronomy 17? It shall be a king of the Lord's choosing. The warning could not have been more serious, dear friends. This request would lead to disaster for Israel. Verse 19 says it all, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. In fact, their position hardened, if you look at it. The request of verse 5 had now become a demand. And they clarified exactly what they're after. And they said, here's verse 19, I think, maybe 20. No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And there it is. The proposal that they might have a king like all the nations had become a firm intention that they themselves would become like all the nations. And their king would not only judge them, he would go out before us and fight our battles. In other words, he would do what the Lord had done for Israel. Israel's battles would no longer be the Lord's, but their own. So the deed is done. They've insisted on the king. And so our passage ends in verse 22, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. And we're left wondering what possible future could there be for this new institution of monarchy given 
only because the people refused to hear the voice of their prophet and judge who spoke the word of the Lord. The people refused to obey Samuel. So the Lord says, obey their voice. And the chapter ends, Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Which means we don't know the answer to our question yet. <laughs> But may I suggest at this critical turning point in the history of the people of Israel that you keep in mind now two horizons as we work our way forward in first and second Samuel. The first one I suggest to you is a rather dark horizon. This is a rather dark chapter. Because if you know the Old Testament, you know the monarchy fails. You know that Israel is indeed led away in no small measure by the, the role of many of its kings, not all of its kings, but many of its kings, that Israel will be led away from their covenant with the Lord, their true king. And so the covenant curses will come will be invoked and Israel will be exiled. Of course, it's not always and only failure. Beginning next week, we're with Saul. And then we're with David in the rest of these books. They're Israel's first two kings and we'll see both have successes and both have failures. But overall, the trajectory of the kings, if you know your Old Testament, is not good. The kings will not be positive as history moves along. And with only a few bright moments, the laws of Moses in Deuteronomy 17 about the king of Israel are not heeded. The monarchy will crumble. The people will be exiled. And Israel will wait once more for the salvation of the Lord. Which then is, of course, the second horizon to keep in view. Because the good news, if there is good news coming out of a chapter like 1 Samuel 8, is that the Lord is the king. And that eventually there would come one who is a king worth having. A king who is, in fact, the opposite of what Samuel warns the people they would get from their king. A king, as it turns out, who is the same king who has always been and who always will be the king. This history has a larger end point. It was in reviewing the very history of Israel that we're considering today that the Apostle Paul talked about this coming king in Acts chapter 13. No need to turn there. Just listen as we conclude. Acts 13 verse 21. In Paul's review of the history of the people of Israel, he comes to our moment. Then they asked for a king, Paul says. He tells the Jews in Pisidia and Antioch, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David, 
to be their king. And of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. We'll come to the promise part later in 2 Samuel. But that's the ultimate horizon in view on this dark day in Israel's history. The Lord is the king. He will not abandon his people. He will be their king once more despite their rejection, which is why it is to the table of that king that we come now in our service. The king whose rejection would lead to life who gives us everything, who frees us, and who saves us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.